Mark chapter 3, to kick things off from Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, Jesus is in a house, they sent someone in to call him. Now a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Now that was a rhetorical question in the first century, as it is today. Your mom is Mary, your brothers are James and Jude. But then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him, which would have been the inner ring of his apprentices. And he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Notice that for Jesus, his community of apprentices is his family. What does Jesus call God? What's the number one moniker Jesus has for God? The Father. And what does Jesus call his apprentices? Brothers and sisters. In Greek, it's one word, adelphoi, and it's used not only by Jesus, but by every single one of the writers of the New Testament as the dominant moniker for what you and I are. In fact, it's used 342 times in the New Testament. It is the dominant idea frame for what kind of community Jesus is up to. So there are all sorts of types of community. CrossFit is a type of community slash cult. Um, (laughs) Marriage is a type of community, or the nuclear family is. A BFF is a type of community. A local school is a type of community. For Jesus, the type of community that we are, at least his intent, is that of family. Now, this idea of family sounds really nice and and, you know, G-rated and all of that stuff, if not a little bit sappy. But I would argue this is actually one of Jesus' most radical teachings that was one that contributed to his execution. But to see why, we need to do just a little bit of background. So give me 10 or 15 minutes to content dump on you, and then I promise relevance is coming. We will circle back and talk about what this means for you and I in the practice of community. Two things you need to get your head around in um, about first century Jewish culture to make sense of how radical this was. First off, anthropologists talk about a strong group society versus a weak group society. Or another language for that is collectivist versus individualist, though that has overtones of the kind of Twitter social justice war going on right now. So just set that aside. Strong group weak group. Jesus' first century world was a strong group society to the core. Here's a working definition of a strong group society from the cultural anthropologist Bruce Molina. In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. Examples of strong group societies would be, say, Korean culture, most of African culture, most of Arabic culture, basically pretty much every single culture around the world and down through human history except for late modern Western Europeans in the room tonight. 
We are example of a weak group society where the individual has priority over the group. Most of us just assume that our desire, preference, autonomy, self-determination, happiness is more important than whatever group we identify with. In fact, um, just to expose my nerd alert moment, I was thinking about Star Trek the last few days. And like, there's one character in Star Trek that is from a strong group society. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That idea is so weird to us, we made him an alien, right? (laughs) Because it, I mean, it's literally like, that doesn't sound like planet Earth to us today. Um, In fact, for many of us, it sounds not only weird, but oppressive. Strong group cultures tend to have very clear roles, gender roles, interfamily roles between parents and children. It's honor and shame often. Because in the West we have redefined freedom to mean the ability to do whatever the heck we want as long as it doesn't, quote, harm others, which is not the classical definition of freedom in either Christian theology or Greek philosophy. But because of that redefinition, we tend to judge strong groups' cultures as oppressive to our individualism. Children of immigrant families are often caught in the crossfire, as you see in a novel like White Teeth by Zadie Smith or a movie like The Big Sick, torn between the individualism of the West and a secular set of values and family ties to a strong group society. All that to say, Jesus' world was a strong group world, and in that world, your primary group was your family. Now, second piece of background. Family at the time was patrilineal. You don't need to remember that word at all. It just means that your family was defined by the father's bloodline, listen carefully, not by marriage. So here's an example of a first century Mediterranean family tree. This is true of Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture. Your family was father, in this case, to son, to son and daughter, to grandchildren on the son's side and the son's side only. This is why there are no surnames in the Bible. You read about so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, whatever, right? So there's no, we, there's no Jude Comer in the Bible. Like, he would be Jude, son of John Mark, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I, I think about my son, my, my friend uh, Helgi in Iceland. His, um, he doesn't have a surname because he's Icelandic. So he's Helgi Helgensen, which is Icelandic for Helgi, son of Helgi. That's so wicked cool. I almost want to move to Iceland and have a fourth child just to name him John Mark, son of John Mark, you know? (laughs) Just plays to all of my ego right there. But here's why this matters. In a patrilineal culture, your spouse, this is weird for us, but was technically not a part of your family. So marriage, for the most part, was arranged. That doesn't mean that romantic love wasn't a part of the ancient world. It absolutely was. But marriage was often more about what was best for your group, which turned out to be your family, than was best for you or your emotional happiness. What this in turn meant was, this is where I'm coming to, your closest relationship, your most intimate emotional bond, was likely with your sibling, not with your spouse. In the same way that in the West, we just kind of assume that your most intimate relationship is or will be with your spouse or your lover or your significant other. If you were an ancient Mediterranean, the first, you would just assume your most intimate relationship would be with your brother or your sister. A classic example is the story of Mark Antony and Octavia, if you know that story at all, where her choice between her lover and her brother, and what does she choose? her brother, because that's your primary loyalty. 
Now, this is fascinating to me. What does Jesus call his apprentices? Adelphoi, siblings, brothers, and sisters, the most intimate relationship paradigm in his world. Now, Jesus, my point of all of that is Jesus calls his community of apprentices to function like a strong group style family. Now, this was radical in his day. Not because Jesus calls his community to function like a strong group family. That wasn't a new idea. From page one of the Bible, you pick up that we're designed by God for relationship. As Gerald said just a moment ago, the center of reality is a community of Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. On page one of the Bible, God says, let us make mankind in our image and likeness. Scholars have gone around on this for millennia. Who is the us? Who is God talking to? It could be, he could be referring to the divine council, this kind of group of spiritual beings that God rules over the universe with, or this could be an early nod to the New Testament idea of God in three persons, or what we now call the Trinity. Either way, it means that God exists in a web of relationships, and according to Jesus, who called God Father in a family. Dr. Gary Bashirs has this beautiful saying, quote, God is a family who makes family. I love that. God is love, and, rela- and love cannot exist without relationship. We are created in the Genesis story out of the overflow of God's relational, generous, self-giving, loving soul, and we're created in God's image and likeness, meaning we're created for relationships, in particular for a family where we live in the flow of Trinitarian love. But none of this was a new idea. This idea of love is not new or unique to Jesus. It's literally on page one of the Bible. Even the idea of God as Father has parallels in ancient rabbinic thought. What was radical that Jesus does to upset the status quo was two things. One, Jesus defines his family not by patrilineal bloodline, but by, quote, whoever does God's will. Now, Jesus' world, I think about all the racial tension in particular in the news and the Twitter sphere over the last week or two, which is just devastating. Jesus' world was far more ethnocentric than ours. This is Jesus saying his family is open not only to Jewish people, but to Gentiles as well, that his vision for it is a multi-ethnic family made up of Jews and Americans and Italians and Koreans and Ugandans and Icelandic, Icelanders, Icelandic people, whatever it is. This is one of the ideas that got Jesus killed. The event, if you know anything about the Passion, the event that finally brought on Jesus' execution was his cleansing of the temple. And what does he say at the zenith of that story? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I'm sorry, for all nations, and the word there in Greek is ethnos, where we get our word ethnic groups, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And that's a quote from the prophet Jeremiah saying, you've lost the plot line. This whole lo- this temple, this locus point of heaven and earth, God and humanity together in one place was supposed to be for the world. You, Israel, are supposed to be a light to the world. That's language from Isaiah long before Jesus. But you've lost the plot, lo- plot line. You don't say that in Jerusalem and walk away alive. The second and even more radical idea for his day was Jesus' call was to put his family ahead of your patrilineal family. When Jesus said, my mother and my brother are those you know, who do God's will, that was, un- we read that, we're like, okay, cool, whatever. It's weak group society, widespread divorce, low family ties. In Jesus' world, that was unthinkable. Jesus is the oldest living male in his family line. 
He is responsible before God and his village for his mother and his brothers, all of his siblings. But he seems to be saying that his blood family is a part of a much bigger family, and that family is even more important. Conservative Christians, and this is not a bad thing, love to point out the pro-family teachings of Jesus about divorce, marriage, honor your father and mother, of which there are many. But scholars argue there are just as many anti-family teachings of Jesus. And what they mean by anti-family is just like really hard sayings. Jesus would say like, you must hate your father and mother to follow after me, anybody. And, And the best way to read those, they argue, is Jesus is coming from a very traditional culture where to this day, if you're, say, ultra-Orthodox Jewish and you convert or you're baptized into the way of Jesus, your family will hold a funeral for you. That's the level of identity here in ethnocentrism. Jesus is saying you have to give up your blood family to join my new multi-ethnic family. And if you don't do that, you can't actually be my apprentice or be my disciple. This was a radical call in a strong group, patrilineal family, to give all of that up to join Jesus' new family. And it's just as radical for us today. Why? Well, here's at least two reasons. One, because Jesus does not question the strong group approach to community. He just says you have to make his group your primary group. This is wildly at odds with our Western sensibility of individualism. Think of that definition I read just a few minutes ago of a strong group culture. I took the liberty of rewriting it. Hopefully this is not illegal. And I just swapped out the word church for the word group. Let me just just pay attention to your heart as I reread this over you. In the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. How many of you are just like freaking out a little bit right now under the surface of your heart? Like you're just about to bolt for the door. I knew it was a cult. I knew it. (laughs) Right? If you feel that way, I feel exactly the same. Like, oh my gosh. Now, if church is either too, there's too much baggage in that word for you, or if it's too ambiguous or generic, just swap out, say, Bridgetown community or whatever your community is, whoever you identify as, these are the people I follow Jesus with. Is this how you live? I'm responsible to, to, to my community for my actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. I'm bedded in my community. I'm free to do what I want and I feel is right and necessary only if in accord with our community's norms and only if the action is in our community's best interest. My community has priority over me. How many of you agree with that statement? (laughs) I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse. Now, this isn't a guilt trip at all. This is just to say pretty much none of us think this way except for David down here, who's here this morning, who grew up in the Philippines. And he literally was like, yeah, I think that way. One person in the room, right? He grew up in a strong group style society. And yet this is the call of Jesus to family. Secondly, this I think is radical, may not be to you, but for Jesus to be a child of the father is at the same time to be a brother or a sister in the family. The New Testament theologian Paul's go-to metaphor for Jesus' new Jew plus Gentile family was that of adoption. Go read Galatians chapter 4 if you want to know more. I think from just personal experience, when T and I adopted our daughter Sunday, 
when the judge's gavel hit the wood, at that moment, she, be- she became simultaneously my daughter, T's daughter, and Jude and Moses' sibling, whether she wanted that or not. <laughs> and I'm sure there are times she would have just wanted the parents and not the brothers or whatever. I don't know that's true, but I'm guessing it's true. But it doesn't, family doesn't work that way. She doesn't get to pick. She doesn't get to be in relationship with me or with her mother, but not in relationship with her brothers because the two go together. Even Paul's language of justification, more and more New Testament scholars are saying for the last few hundred years, we've read the New Testament, in particular Paul's language of justification, through the lens of a hyper-individualistic Western legal guilt-innocence culture, which is the culture that we have been in until very recently. But more and more scholars argue that no first-century Jew would have read it that way, that justification was less about you were guilty and now you are innocent before God declared in the right. It was more about family identity, about how you were baptized from one family group into another family group, and you were said you were justified. You mean you were declared to be in the family of God? One scholar I read a few days ago translated the word as familification and said, we have been familified by grace through faith. I'm like, I like that. We've been familified by Jesus. It's kind of cool. Now, all that to say, content dump over. Let's just take a deep, everybody take a deep breath. Just, oh, you're good Portlanders. You must have a mindfulness app. Like that was, <laughs> you're very good at that. Um, let's just talk a little bit about what this means or a few of the implications for you and me and our practice of community. Just three takeaways. First off, the most basic, Jesus' vision for church is that of a family. We say this all the time until we're blue in the place, but for Jesus, the church is not a building, nor is it an event on Sunday, much less a nonprofit. It is a family, and that is how we are to operate in a relationship. Think of the basic practices of a healthy family, A healthy family eats together. The philosopher Albert Borgman, who became an expert on the effect of TV on the disintegration of American family life and society in general, once said, quote, yes, fornication is bad. Yes, adultery is bad, but not sitting down to dinner is worse. And and he, he did not mean that, like, fornication is fine. What he meant is, like, this is not an ancillary issue. Eating together is central to the life of a family. That's one of the many reasons we practice the Lord's Supper as a full meal with our communities around a table in a living room rather than here on a Sunday around a stage. Secondly, a family does life together. They just spend time together. Third, they are loving and affectionate with each other. Four, they hold each other accountable, which looks like discipline for a younger member or more like intervention for an older member. The New Testament, we hate to hear this stuff in the West, but the New Testament is full of examples of church discipline or even the word excommunication is not used in the New Testament, but the idea where you shut somebody out of community until such time as they repent because they contribute pain, poison, cancer to the community rather than life. Five examples in the New Testament are one, sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5. Two, lack of repentance when sinning against a brother or sister, Matthew 18. Three, unwillingness to forgive, also Matthew 18. Four, teaching false doctrine, 2 Corinthians 3. Five, um, divisiveness, Titus 3. I think I said five, that's six. And even laziness, which in context is an unwillingness to bear responsibility, 2 Thessalonians 3. All healthy families live in a balance of loving acceptance and loving accountability. Jesus' family is no different. 
Also, a healthy family shares resources. With that, a healthy family shares responsibilities. After dinner, we all pitch in to clean the kitchen. More and more as my children age, that means my children clean the kitchen and tea and I drink wine. But you get the idea. Seven, um, bears one another's burdens in the language of Galatians. Eight, makes decisions together. Like you don't just announce to the group, we're moving to Des Moines, or what, especially not to Des Moines, like pray about that one, you know? But you make decisions together. There's discernment together as a community. Nine, releases each other into their destiny. Like I see this in you. I call out this destiny in your future. And how can I aid you to that end? And finally, is faithful to each other until death. Now, just think about your community, whoever, whether it's a Bridgetown community or whoever you identify. Can it be said of you? You eat together. You do life together. You're loving and affectionate. You hold each other accountable in hard conversations. You share resources. You share responsibilities. You bear each other's burdens. You make decisions together. You release each other into your destiny, and you are faithful to each other until the end. Now, if that very simple sketch of life together in the family of Jesus sounds crazy to you, and you think, okay, no, I'm not, that's not, I don't sign up for that. I like, I'm cool to come to church once in a while when it works with my schedule and have a few friends who follow Jesus, but on my terms. Again, no judgment at all. I just want you to hear tonight that you think that way, I think that way, because we have been socialized by Western hyper-individualistic culture to think that just doing church that way, I come once in a while and I have a few friends, is normal. But we did not get that idea from Jesus. We did not get that idea from the New Testament. We did not get that idea from the traditional culture which it grew up in and is still thriving all around the world. We got that idea from our hyper-individualistic Western culture. Jesus' vision of church as family simply does not align with American individualism. Secondly, on a little bit more of a tender note, family is the place of our deepest hurt and our deepest healing. Our highest highs, as a general rule, and our lowest lows both come from relationships. We're created for relationship, as I said that, in the image and likeness of God. Of course, some of us are extroverted, and we draw energy from being around other people. Others of us are introverted and just jealous um, because we draw strength from the forest. Um, but all, all of us are relational, relational in the core of our being. The authors of The Relational Soul put it this way, what does loneliness tell us about ourselves? Be it chronic or acute, slight or significant, loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were both born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. Neuroscientists tell us that from the time we are in our mother's womb, our brain is wired to attach to people. They call this part of our brain the attachment system, and it literally comes online before we come out of the womb. Now, the language used in psychology for this phenomenon is attachment theory, and it's based on a very simple idea that that we have this built into us by God impulse to attach to other people that you see in a baby when they make eye contact with the mother while breastfeeding. And how we attach or do not attach when we are a little kid, or a baby in particular, 
then as we age is encoded into our DNA and it becomes the way that we attach or do not attach to other people in adult relationships. Now this idea was developed and it's not, I mean it's ancient wisdom, but it was developed most recently in the 1970s by a psychologist by the name of John Balby, who's the first modern psychologist to notice and not only notice but to data test how adult patterns of relationship are set by the relationship we had with our parents or our caregivers in our early years. He identified four basic attachment styles. This is a very brief overview. One is avoidant style. This is when our parents or primary caregivers are consistently unavailable, at least at an emotional level. What happens is we pick up that we can't trust other people. And so as we become adults, as soon as we move toward any form of intimacy, romantic, friendship, church, whatever, we immediately like feel fear and we push back against that intimacy because we think at a subconscious level people can't be trusted. Now, very little of this, if any, is conscience. We might not ever say that out loud, but the operating system of our implicit memory in our brain that's literally in our DNA is we believe at a gut level that we can't trust people and so we have to stay away from intimacy. Um, Second attachment pattern is anxious attachment. This is when parents are consistently unreliable and they don't grow the child's, uh, this is very technical language, but ego capacity. We as followers of Jesus would just say sense of love from the father and mom and dad. What happens then is we pick up that, oh, I can't trust myself. So as we become adults, we tend to relate to other people with this anxious kind of set of patterns of relationship, whether we smother people or, or cling to people or overwhelm people or we're just really needy or there's codependency or enmeshment because we don't have a strong enough sense of self to love another as another, to bring our real self to a relationship. Third style is scattered, which is when the parents are both unavailable and unreliable, which is kind of the worst of both worlds. We somehow internalize the message we can't trust other people or ourselves, so we oscillate between the two things as adults. And then the fourth style is secure attachment, which, which is when a child is basically well-loved. Not, there's no perfection. There's no perfect family, but is basically well-loved from a young age, and their caregivers show up at an emotional level, and they just basically imbibe the message that the world is a basically good place and I can trust most people and I can trust myself. Now, um, all sorts of takeaways from this observation of human nature or sin, if you prefer, what's gone wrong in the human soul. The main takeaway for our purposes tonight, and this is all going somewhere, I promise, is that the only way to heal an unhealthy attachment style is through healthy relationship. Because basically, this is all at some level about trust. And if we don't pick up from a young age how to trust other people ourselves, it will manifest in a lack of trust for other people for ourselves and, more on this in a little bit, of God. And we can't fix this part of us. There's no pill. There's no mindfulness app for this one. Um, There's no book. Self-awareness is a giant step toward healing to recognize, oh, I like have this unhealthy style of attachment or pattern or issues with intimacy. Massive help to identify that. But that doesn't fix it. The only way to heal this broken part of our soul is through not a perfect, that doesn't exist, but a healthy, loving relationship. 
Now, you may not like the language of attachment theory. That may sound way too secular or way too psycho-nonsense for you, and that's absolutely fine. In far more just biblical language, and this is biblical to the core, and if you want to know more, I refer you to our teaching series and practice a year or two ago on dealing with your past. But in more biblical language, our family of origin sets our soul on a trajectory to who we do or do not become. And this goes on not just back to our parents, but to our grandparents and our great-grandparents. To the third and fourth generation is the language of the Bible. From our parents or primary caregivers, we pick up ways of being in relationship and ways of doing life that then become encoded into our DNA, literally are hardwired into our body. And as adults, our life with Jesus, our apprenticeship to Jesus, is about God the Father reparenting us into the family of God. We all know that the idea of God as Father is not PC and that there's all sorts of trauma there for so many people, but for Jesus, it was worth the risk that God is our Father and he's reparenting us in compassionate love into the family of God. In Paul's language, it's about putting off the old ways of being in relationship in life from our family of origin, our culture of origin, even some of our ethnic background, and putting on the ways of being in relationship of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus' family is not a strong group or weak group per se. It's not an Eastern or Western or American or Jewish or Indian. It's a kingdom of God family. That's how he does life and relationship. And all I want you to get today, and if that just whets your appetite, I encourage you to read The Relational Soul, or we have a recommended list of therapists from the perspective of Jesus that just we really trust and do good work here. The main thing I want to communicate to you tonight is just the way God does this work of healing in the trust structures of our soul is through relationships. It's through familial love. I read a fascinating um, review of James Penbreaker, who's a social psychologist's work, and it's published in his book, Opening Up. Um, But he did this massive, like, massive nationwide research project on trauma and, and its effect on adult long-term health and why some people seem to recover from trauma and other people seem to basically never recover from trauma. And his hypothesis as a researcher when he went into the project was it's most likely trauma that has a social stigma attached to it or shame attached to it that people don't recover from, such as rape, or the suicide of a spouse, or a few things like that that he put under a microscope, so to speak. What he found was that was absolutely not true. That the nature of the trauma was next to irrelevant. All that really mattered was whether or not somebody on the other side of trauma was in loving relationship. If they had a family, if they had a community, if they had a support group, he said virtually every single person came back healthier than ever before on the other side of trauma, no matter what the form of trauma was. Because we are both hurt at the deepest level of relationship, and we are healed at the deepest level of relationship. Last week we made the point just that in community all your stuff comes to the surface, and that's so true. But it's not just your sin, it's even the deeper stuff than that, the hurt below that makes us hurt other people. But what we need to add on this week is that it's through that same community that we experience healing and freedom from God. Finally, a last takeaway for our time. The major difference between family and other forms of community is that you can't really, with a family, drop out. 
<laughs> for better or for worse, you're in it until death. When we start new Bridgetown communities, we talk to them about the difference between family and friends and just say, listen, your Bridgetown community, like, let's have some healthy expectations here. It doesn't have to be your friend group. If it works out that way, wonderful. But friendship is based on chemistry, personality, stage of life. None of that is bad at all. It's just hard to predict when and where lightning will strike. When people approach community that way in search of friendship, sometimes it works and works great, but more often than not, it doesn't. Family is a little bit different. With fam- like, we don't pick our family. You may get along swimmingly with your siblings, or you may not, but either way, you show up at Thanksgiving. Unless if there is some egregious, ongoing behavior pattern that is toxic, basically, family is for life. Robert Frost famously wrote, Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> Now, that is a very sarcastic and negative view of family, and I'm not here to endorse that. But what he's getting at is, yeah, and there's something about family. Like, all right, this is just what it is. I'm not here because of some consumeristic impulse. I'm here because I was born next to you or whatever. And we take our communities through what we call the cycles of community. This is not new for a lot of you. Um, stage one, and, and you can apply this not only to a Bridgetown community, but to basically any relationship. Stage one is what we call the honeymoon, um, which if it's like you have the chemistry, the spark, and you all get along amazing, it's like the emotional high. Like, oh my gosh, we've been together every single day this week, and we live within a block and a half of each other. We went to Salt and Straw three times just yesterday, and like the whole thing, like it's that, you know? Or uh, more likely, you end up in like, you're like new to Portland and you join a Bridgetown community and all 15 of you are new to the city and you have nothing in common other than like your neighborhood and Bridgetown church. And you're like, what's your name again? And you're weird and I have nothing in common with you other than Jesus and an address, right? And it's just, it's more like how I would imagine an arrange, a honeymoon for an arranged marriage is. It's, it's not bad. Hope, maybe it's bad. Maybe it's great actually, but it's just awkward, you know? Or I don't know what it's like. I would just imagine you're a little nervous and there's, tense and all of that, but then eventually you move through the honeymoon into kind of an apathy. And all I mean by that is we just, we settle in. Often we get a little bit bored. How's it going? Oh, it's going fine. Tuesday night, rice bowls, whatever. And then inevitably we hit a rough patch. Like we hit conflict, whether it's frustration or fear. Frustration, just inevitably, um, just your stuff starts to come to the surface. You begin to feel safe with each other. And so then the real you begins to come out, and it turns out the real you has a few issues. And, and often you don't realize that they are issues. And trust me, you need to. Um, and it just, your stuff begins to come to the surface, and no matter how hard you try to hide, or just preferences, like there begin, it's not sinful stuff, just there begin to, you know, you begin to clash with people over preferences of parenting style, or this or that, or just so-and-so always talks with his mouth full of food. And some of us have just a little bit bit of an issue with that, you know, whatever. Your preference, it, like just these things begin to come to the surface, and we just start to get an annoyance, a frustration, a little critical, a little sarcastic, a little, I don't want to do this, or, or it's not that so much, it's just fear. You begin to realize, oh my gosh, like we're moving now toward intimacy. Like people are beginning to really open up. This isn't just like an observation about whatever, and did you like the sermon? This is like we're actually beginning to bear soul to soul, and that's terrifying for me because I don't trust people or I don't trust myself or whatever your story is. But then if you stick with it, in time you move to a stage of just acceptance. You begin to recognize, oh yeah, so-and-so talks with their mouth full of food all the time. 
But you know what? They just paid for half of dinner, and they're wonderful, and they contribute this or that, and you begin to celebrate, not just accept who people are, but hopefully celebrate the image of God in them and make peace with the relationship that is offered to you and the people that are there in that living room, which are far from ideal because all of us are far from ideal. And finally, you move toward re-engagement. You press then back into vulnerability and accountability, but not with all of the idealism of early on, but with love. And finally, you come to a place of health. Now, if your journey in community is anything like mine and my crew down here, this is not like a one-and-done thing. You go through this cycle, like upward spiral over the years. My point, really all I want to make to you today, is that most people bail right around stage three. Right, right when you get to that spot of frustration and I don't like this and the preference and it doesn't work for my schedule and so-and-so is in a different stage of life or whatever it is or I'm scared and this is intimate and I don't trust and I don't know if I, whatever it is, that's where most people bail for whatever reason, which is right before Jesus actually starts to do the really good stuff in our soul. And while I am not saying that once you join Bridgetown Church or Bridgetown Community, you join for life, okay? That's probably biblical, but I'm too American to argue that, all right? Um, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying we need to, you know, take the Benedictine vow of stability for life to the same place in the same community. All I'm saying, all of that I want you to hear, is it's the people who stay, as a general rule, it's the people who stay who grow. I love this from Dr. Joseph Hellerman. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Put another way, we become like Jesus for the most part in relationships. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, meaning like your stuff comes out and you realize, oh, like you, you have a better vision of who you actually are before God. And they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. And then this is the line right here. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Now, finally, our practice for the week up ahead is all at practicingtheway.org community. This week we began emotionally healthy relationship skills from our friends Pete and Gary Scazzaro in New York. There are four relational skills we plan to work through over the summer. The first one is called a community temperature reading. This is just like a little bit of a warm-up. Let me just give you a really quick tutorial. So this is basically a very awkward form of forced conversation, okay? Um, That functions as a kind of relational hygiene to keep your relationship healthy. Um, My wife and I do this at least once a week. We did it just a few days ago on date night. So let me just give you an example. It's it's very short. This should take you five, ten minutes max, and you don't go crazy deep. This is not the time to talk about, like, attachment style or your father wound or trust, like, That's another thing. We'll get there. This is just basic relational health. So you start with appreciations or excitement. So I appreciate so much that you did this the other day, right? Or T had so many appreciations for me, it was not even funny because I'm just amazing, you know? 
And, and then you move on to worries, concerns, or puzzled, and you use language like, I'm worried that, or I'm puzzled by, and you approach with a heart posture of curiosity, non-judgment, and compassion. So instead of like, I can't believe you never take the garbage out, you clearly don't care for me, or whatever, it's just, I'm puzzled why you never take the garbage out <laughs> on Monday night, or whatever it is. And you, you approach, right? This is actually, the, for me, if you know me at all, this is the hardest one for me. I just want to like, I know why you're doing it, and I know it's the worst possible, most nefarious motivation you could ever dream of, because somehow I have access to the inner motivation of your heart. I don't know how I got it, but I have it. Um, I don't, by the way. Anyway, third is complaints and possible solutions. So you just use this little phrase, I notice and I prefer. And again, this is not for like big, heavy stuff. So I think date night, it was like... Um, so we have a, a laundry dryer vent that is right outside the window to our bedroom, and we sleep with the window open in the summer. And so I just said to my lovely wife, um, I noticed that you love to just throw a load of laundry in before we go to bed. And I prefer to not, you know, sleep to toxic fumes in my lungs <laughs> and the sound of gunk, 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 gunk instead of the quiet of the night. So I would prefer, I totally understand why that would be convenient, whatever, and we're doing laundry together, but I would prefer if you would just wait until the morning, right? So it's stuff like that. Then new information, just like, oh, this is something you might not know. Here's an update for this or that. And then finally, hopes and wishes. Man, I have this hope, or I have this dream, or I was just thinking the other day about what would it look like when we're 60 or whatever to do this, or whatever the thing is. You can do this with your spouse, with a friend, with a community member. And this is, and I recommend you do it two to three times a week, at least for a month, just to begin. To, if, if all you get from this is I notice and I prefer and I'm puzzled, you just like seriously moved up 20 emotional intelligence points, like right there, if all you get from it. Now, last thing on emotionally healthy relationship skills is we don't have time this round to do an in-depth teaching series on each one. I hope to come back and do that. But my friend Dave Lomas in San Francisco, Reality San Francisco, just finished one. And if you want to listen along to that podcast to augment our teaching on community, I highly recommend that. Finally, the heart behind each one of these skills is not just to like stay in relationship or keep a relationship, you know, drama free, but is really to move toward the healing and freedom of our soul. Because we are relational souls designed by God for community and family, we cannot heal apart from the relational love of others. Salvation is healing. The etymology of the English word salvation is from the Latin salve, meaning an ointment you put on the wound. And there is no salvation, there is no healing apart from relationship, both with God the Father and, hear me, with his family and his love through our brothers and sisters into our soul. And this is why, and this is my last thought for the day, and let's just end here. How at the core of reality, at the core of the human person is this truth. How we relate is how we relate. Meaning the, whatever you want to call it, if you want to call it your attachment style or you want to call it your personality or you want to call it your character, are ways of being in relationship that we pick up, most of us from our family of origin and our relationship with our parents or at least our culture, shape not only how we relate to one another but how we relate to God. It is a fallacy to think that we can have an estranged relationship with our mom or a deep father wound or a mistrust of all men and then have a really healthy relationship 
with God the Father. It just doesn't. We think it works that way because we're American. We're individualistic, but it doesn't. How we relate is how we relate. Our ways of being in the world are the same with God as they are with other people. And Jesus' way of saving us, of healing us at a soul level, the bedrock trust of the fabric of our being is through loving relationships in his family. Let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.